0: Thanks very much. Welcome to Grace Toronto Church. My name is Tarek George. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And if this is your first time visiting with us, uh, welcome. We are so glad that you could join us. Uh, We are currently in a sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we have reached the end of our series. Look at that. We've covered a good chunk of the book. And so uh, if you flip over your bulletin to the back, uh, we're going to be looking at Exodus 34, and you can follow along. And to read for us today is Gwen. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word.
1: Today's scripture reading is from Exodus 34, verses 1 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thanks, Gwen. It was in uh, 1977 that a shuttle called the Voyager 1 was launched into deep space. Some of you here may be old enough to remember that day, while others of us may have read about it in the news. But as of this month, the spacecraft has traveled an incredible 15 billion miles and is currently sitting at the farthest distance that any man-made object has ever traveled from the Earth. It is quite a feat of engineering. But you see, what makes this shuttle so very interesting is not so much how far it has traveled, but rather what it carries. Because you see, on board the Voyager 1 sits a very special item called the Golden Record. It is a time capsule designed to be found by intelligent life elsewhere in our universe. The contents of the Golden Record include images and audio that were carefully selected to convey what humanity is like. They include information about human anatomy, DNA, language, relationships, culture, and music. In short, the Golden Record is an attempt to summarize what it means to be truly human and what it means to live here on Earth. It is designed to establish a relationship by conveying to anyone or anything that might be listening who we are as people and what we are all about. Why do I tell that story? Well, I think as we come to our passage this morning, the author reveals something similar that has taken place in human history. Because in Exodus chapter 34, we learn that the God of the cosmos, the most intelligent life that exists, has carefully curated and developed a kind of golden record. It is a record that he has dropped down into our atmosphere so that we can know him as God and learn what he is all about. What you may ask is on this divine golden record. Moses tells us the contents of this record include three things. And they are these first a summary of God's holy law. Second, a proclamation of God's holy name. And third, a confirmation of God's holy promise. God's law, God's name, and God's promise. Now, I was, we're gonna see each of the contents of this record communicates something really important about who God is, what He intends, and why each of us have need of Him. So let's look at our passage together. Turn with me to the passage in your bulletin. If you are just joining us, here's what we've covered so far in the book of Exodus. We've learned that God has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He has called them to be his people, and he has promised to be their God. And in Exodus 19 to 20, we see Israel formally enter into a covenantal relationship with this God. They are mindful of how he has just delivered them. They respond by agreeing to put their faith in this God and agreeing to orient their lives around obedience to him. But you see, as the book continues, we find that the people begin to doubt and question their God. And in Exodus 32 that we covered last week, they ultimately make a decision to reject this God and make an idol for themselves. They effectively break the first two commandments of God's law. While Moses is up on the mountain meeting with God and making preparations on behalf of this people, they turn away and give themselves over to worship a golden calf. Moses, on seeing what the people have done, is so shocked and disappointed that in a fit of anger, he breaks the two tablets of God's law. The physical breaking of these tablets becomes this visible symbol of what it looks like to sin against this God because the broken tablets testify to how the people have just broken God's law. And the question that the reader is left to grapple with at this point in the story is basically this. What is to happen to this relationship, this covenantal relationship now? Is God done and through with these stubborn, sinful, and rebellious people? And to that question, this passage answers a resounding no. No. What we find in this passage is that God extends unimaginable grace and mercy to these people. He somehow finds it in himself to overlook their transgression, forgive their sin, and reconcile this relationship. Look with me at our text. God speaks to Moses in verses one to two. He says, for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke be ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain he's basically saying look I know that my people have been unfaithful to me but if they're willing we can put this behind us we can start afresh. And that's how our passage opens. Now, one of the things I want you to notice here is that this fresh start with God begins the same way. God intends to give these people the same law again. That is the Ten Commandments, which is quite astonishing if you think about it because these people have just proven that they can't keep it. So why reintroduce something that clearly hasn't worked? It's because of this, that God's holy law communicates something important about who he is and what he intends for people. In fact, if you were to survey the Bible's whole teachings about the law, you'll find that it generally serves three purposes. It serves as a fence, it serves as a guide, and it serves as a mirror. Let me explain. First, God gives his people to the law because it serves as a fence; It guards against and restrains evil. The Bible argues that there's a sense in which all people, all people, regardless of their spiritual convictions, seem to benefit from God's law. Our inner conscience suggests that we most naturally embrace many of God's commandments and indeed try to live by them. Even if we don't necessarily subscribe to the Christian faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think you would agree Uh, that it is generally wrong to murder, commit adultery, steal, and bear false witness. In fact, our society as a whole functions well because we can generally agree upon these things. The Apostle Paul argues in Romans chapter two that this is because God has created all people in his image and has granted to every person some degree of conscience and morality for the good of the world. In short, God has given us his law for the proper functioning of our society. The law restrains evil in some measure, and that's why God gives it to his people here once again. That's the first purpose of God's law. Second, God gives his people the law because it serves as a guide. It is meant to instruct God's people then and now about how to live well with God. And when I say that, I don't mean that it is the way we earn our salvation and right standing before God. No, not not at all. The Bible claims that salvation is only offered by grace through faith, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But for now, I want you to just notice from our text to whom this law has been given to in our passage. Because I think a failure to read this text in its proper context has led to all kinds of misunderstandings about this God of the Old Testament. This law is given to a people who have already been saved and called by God. Notice the sequence of events because that really matters. These people are first delivered out of their slavery by God's grace and then given the law as a guide for how to live. The implication, I think, is important. God did not say to these people, Do what I have commanded you and I will save you. No, he said to them, I have saved you, so now do what I have commanded you. Do you see the difference there? God's law, men and women, was never meant to be a means of salvation. Rather, it is a gift to those who have already been saved. Grace Toronto, can I just invite you to grapple with that statement? Just do that because if you understand this fact, I think it will profoundly change the way you live the Christian life. You will stop seeing obedience to God as merely a checklist of things you must do and things you must not because that's not at all what it is. God's law, my friends, is not merely judicial. It is relational. God's law is meant to teach you and I what it really is what is really and truly pleasing to God. And it's also meant to teach us what really and truly offends him. In other words, it is a guide for every Christian to grow and deepen their relationship with the God who has saved them. Do you follow me? Let me illustrate this for you by way of example. <laughs> My wife, Kathy, allows flowers, and she will ask me to buy her flowers as often as I am able. <laughs> When I buy flowers for my wife, you understand that I don't do it to earn her love. I already have that. We're married. But I do it because she has told me that it pleases and delights her. My doing what she has asked does not earn her love for me, but rather it helps me express my love for her. And so it is with our obedience to God also. We don't obey God's commandments in order to earn his love. If you are a Christian and you have trusted in Jesus, the Bible says that you are already more loved and more accepted than you can ever dare imagine. But because you are so loved and because you are so very accepted, you are now relationally invited to do the things that please and delight your God. And that's why God gives these people his law again. it is meant to be a guide to them as they re-engage with this God. Because third, and maybe most importantly, God also gives his people the law because it serves as a mirror. It shows us the standard of God's perfection and holiness in what he requires of people. And to that effect, it also shows us that we don't measure up to that standard because of our own sin and rebellion. The Bible claims that in the same way Israel broke God's law, so too to each of us. Romans 3 says this, listen, there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, we have this same problem, don't we? We break the Ten Commandments, which summarize God's holy law. Like Israel, we worship idols also idols of wealth, comfort, pleasure, or power. We regularly fail to acknowledge this God. By that I mean that we either don't believe in Him and trust Him as He has asked, or we don't obey Him and submit to Him as we ought. And listen, that primary sin, that primary sin leads to a whole host of other sins outlined in these 10 commandments. Have you dishonored your parents, stolen, coveted, lied? If we're honest, I think we have. And this law would pronounce us as guilty. What about murder and adultery? Surely most of us haven't done that. And yet Jesus, when explaining these commandments in their fullness, confronts us with these words. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. of murder, the Bible says this, everyone who so much as hates his brother is a murderer. Let these words sink in because you see, according to the Bible, all of us have sinned and all of us stand guilty before God. If you're here and exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that the standard of God's holiness runs that deep It's not just about my actions and the quote unquote bad things that I've done in my life. God is also concerned with the hidden inner parts of my life, It includes the things that I secretly nurture, feed and entertain in my own mind. The kinds of things that I can hide from every other person in my life, but I cannot hide from a holy God. And neither can you. Neither can you. You see, God gives us the law as a mirror so that we can see ourselves rightly before him. The law shows us that just like the people of Israel, we too stand guilty before God. We need his grace, mercy, and forgiveness, just like they did. I think it's for this reason that God doesn't just give us his holy law alone. He also gives us his holy name. And that is the second item in this divine golden record. Look with me at verses 5 to 7. We're told that God descended on the mountain. He descended on the mountain in order to proclaim his name to Moses. He appeared in a cloud. What's happening here? Why is God doing this? Well, if you read the previous chapter just before our passage, you'll find a very interesting exchange that takes place between Moses and God. Because in Exodus 33, Moses makes a rather stunning request. He is so overwhelmed by God's faithfulness to his people, despite their own unfaithfulness, that he can scarcely contain himself. He says to God these words, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. This word glory comes from the Hebrew word kavod. It literally means weightiness, weightiness. In the Bible, it's a word that refers to a person's inherent value, honor, or significance. You see, what Moses wants to experience on this mountain is the full weight of how awesome and worthy God is. He wants to see and understand as much as can be known about this God. And so God agrees, in part. He says to Moses in the previous chapter, I will make all my goodness all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. But, God says, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. He's basically saying to Moses, that if I were to show you all the fullness of my holiness, righteousness, and my weightiness, you would utterly perish you would perish. I mean, this request from Moses is utterly insane. It's audacious. It would be almost the equivalent of saying, I would very much like to experience the entire light of the sun, please. Please. I mean, you just can't. The sun is wonderful and beautiful, but if it weren't for the Earth's atmosphere and a distance of 93 million miles, the sun would kill you in an instant. You would perish. You cannot stand face to face with the sun. So how can anyone possibly stand face to face with that which is even more glorious? No imperfect person can possibly look on the face of a perfect God. It can't be done. And so God says to Moses, here's what we'll do. I'm going to put you in a cleft in a rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And I will proclaim before you my name so that you will know who I am. I will let you experience just enough of my glory that you will be able to receive and not die. And that's exactly what we find happening in our passage. Look with me at verses 6 to 7. The Lord passes before Moses and proclaims his holy name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Men and women, this is God's name. Revealed in its fundamental meaning. And in this name, God conveys two basic truths about who he is. First, that he is a God who pardons sin. And second, that he is a God who punishes sin. And I think what God intends for you and I to see this morning is that this name holds both of these. Now, it's worth remembering that God is meeting with these people after they have just sinned against him. They are in a process of reconciliation. And so God begins by first introducing those aspects of his character that they most need. The first word, merciful, describes God's compassion for our misery. It denotes that he genuinely cares about human beings and he has this kind of tender attitude towards us. At the same time, we're told that he's also gracious. He's gracious. Which means that he does good and shows favor to people people who really don't deserve it. He's that kind of God. God describes himself here as being slow to anger. Now this phrase doesn't mean that God never gets angry about sin, but rather that he is self-controlled in his anger. Although he could condemn and destroy sinners in an instant, he chooses to be patient with us. He allows people time and opportunity to repent change and turn back to him. And listen, the reason he does all these things is summarized, I think, in this one phrase, is because he is a God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, he's filled with it abundantly. It just overflows out of him. This phrase conveyed as a kind of long-term loyalty in a relationship it means that god is constant in his affections not fickle or unreliable like human beings he's saying despite how his people have been unfaithful to him he in love still chooses to be faithful to them and it's here that god gets to the very heart of what these people need and indeed all people most need and that's forgiveness verse 7 If you read verse seven, you'll see these three words that are used to describe human wrongdoing, iniquity, transgression, and sin. These terms are often used interchangeably in the Bible, but they can also refer to slightly different aspects of sin. It includes things like the inner corruption of our hearts, all the particular sins that proceed from that corruption, and the basic way in which all of us tend to break God's law repeatedly. Sin has many facets, but the point, really, I think, is this. God's forgiveness is comprehensive. It's comprehensive. There is no aspect of human sin that is left out of this equation. Because He is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and full of love, He is the kind of God who can forgive all kinds of sin. Indeed, this entire process of reconciliation is a reflection of these very aspects of his character. And so Moses wants us to know that the Lord is a God who pardons sin. But in addition, however, God's name also reveals to us that he seems to punish sin. Although he's merciful, gracious, and forgiving, this text makes clear that he will by no means clear the guilty. He visits the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What's he saying here? What does he mean? Well, he's not saying that God holds children responsible for the sins of their parents. That would be to misinterpret this passage. Rather God wants these people to know that his grace and mercy is not a license to continue in their disobedience. He demands that each successive generation of Israel should learn from the sins of their parents and be careful not to repeat them lest they be liable to the same judgment. Do you follow me? The point God is making really just boils down to this. He is a God who takes sin seriously. He is a God who judges sin. And He is a God who punishes sin. And let's be honest, we tend to have a real problem with that as a culture, don't we? I mean, if there is a God, we automatically expect that He must be loving, kind, and good to all. We like those aspects of His character because they seem completely reasonable to us. But a God who judges sin, who punishes wrongdoing, who throws people into hell, No, we can't stomach that. We don't like that at all. And so the Bible says we tend to respond to this God in one of three ways. We either pick and choose the attributes of God that we like and construct a God who is reasonable but not at all real. Or we reject the God altogether because his character seems contrary and impossible to reconcile. Or we accept this God by faith but continue to feel this growing sense of discomfort and confusion about who he reveals himself to be. You see, at every turn, whether in the culture or in the church, I think we are all tempted to abandon and ignore this aspect of who God is, aren't we? But we shouldn't, we shouldn't, and here's why. God's love and justice are not, in fact, at odds with each other. A loving God must be perfectly just. And believe it or not, you and I actually long for a God like this. We do. I don't know about you, but I need to believe in a God who judges sin. I need to believe in a God of perfect justice because, frankly, human justice disappoints me every day. Whether it's the horrors of Epstein or the war in Gaza or the genocide in Tigray, I need to believe that there's a day coming when God will by no means clear the guilty. Don't you want a God like that? Psalm seven says this about God, that God is a righteous judge. He is a God who feels indignation every day, every day. Every day as he looks out over the world and sees your sin and mine, as he sees war and racism and greed, murder and the oppression of the poor, corruption and the abuse of justice, sex slavery and the trafficking of children. Don't you see? A God who claims to be perfectly loving must also be perfectly just. He must punish sin or he cannot be as loving as he so claims. Do you follow me? And if this God does punish sin, it is incumbent on him in fairness to punish it all. Whether that be sin that is great or sin that is small. Indeed, he must hold every sinner, including you and me, accountable for our sin. And that is precisely what we discover about the God of this text. You see, I think what God intends to show us this morning is that his name holds both of these seemingly contradictory things in perfect tension with each other. He is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness, absolutely, no question. But if you reject that, this passage teaches you that you will ultimately stand guilty before this God. You will face the punishment that is due for your sin. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I need to tell you clearly that you are right now standing in the path of judgment because of your sin. What you need is God's forgiveness expressly as it is offered to you by faith through the work of his son, Jesus. You need that. You do. Because listen, if you want to know how it is that God can be perfectly loving and perfectly just, you need only look to the cross. Because this is the place, men and women, where God both pardons sin with grace and mercy and punishes sin with anger and justice. You see, the Bible teaches us that through the gospel, God's pardon was issued to us because our punishment was issued to Christ. He took the full guilt of your sin and mine so that we could be reconciled to this God. And listen, if you've never come to a place of trusting in this God for your salvation, can I ask you to think about doing that today? Come talk with us after the service, and we'd love to pray with you and help you consider what it might mean for you to trust in this God personally. Please do that. Please do that. If you are here and you are a Christian, I think this text gives you some application also. I want you to notice what happens in verse eight. Moses receives a revelation of who God is through his word and he immediately bows down and worships. I mean, don't miss what's happening here. A right understanding of God, always results in a right appreciation of God. Men and women, when God proclaims his word in truth and power, the people of God respond in worship. That's what we do. God's revelation of himself is that good. Which means this, Grace Trano. Everything you are hearing about the person, work, and will of God every Sunday should result in us becoming a better worshiping community. I know that seems like a simple suggestion, but it's so important that you leave here and every week with more than just mere knowledge. The gospel, my friends, is not merely about information, but about transformation. The things you are learning in the Christian life should be shaping you into a more worshipful person and not just making you more informed. There is a tendency in the church at large today to evaluate your Christian maturity on the basis of how much you know. May I suggest instead that you ought to evaluate your Christian maturity on the basis of how deeply that knowledge is actually affecting your life. Ask yourself, am I growing in my devotion, obedience, and affection for this God? And as much as I'm growing in my knowledge of Him, I think that really matters. I think that really matters. Ask God to give you those things as you read, study, and learn about Him. Learn to worship God better. Implications for us as a church. Every week on average, there's about a third of us who come late to worship. Why is that? Why is that? We miss the call to worship, the songs of praise, the prayer of confession, and the words of assurance. Don't do that. Don't do that. Come on time. The eternal God of the cosmos whom we are meeting with every Sunday is more than deserving of that. Grace Toronto, I say this in love. Mature Christians don't have a laid-back approach to the worship of God. They don't. So if we desire maturity, let's fix this problem together. Because God wants us to be a people who not only receive and understand his name as information, but also praise and glorify it with all of our being for our very transformation. This is our second point. And you know third and finally, we're told here that God also gives his people a confirmation of his holy promise. Moses listens to God's proclamation of his name in light of Israel's dire situation. And he says, yes, yes. That is the kind of God that we need you to be. Be that God. And he responds with a prayer in verse nine. He says, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, please, let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. I mean, he's basically imploring God. He's saying, because you are so merciful and gracious, slow to anger, loving, faithful, and forgiving, as your name suggests, would you please be those things to your people now, again? Would you continue to be our God and permit us to be your people? God has good news for them in verse 10, doesn't he? He says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing. It is an awesome thing that I will do. You see, God answers and remakes the covenant that was broken. He confirms this promise that He made long ago to Israel's forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like we've been studying all of these long weeks. He promised us to go in the midst of these people, to pardon their sin, and to take them for His inheritance. And He agrees to stick by them, even though He knows all too well that they will continue to reject and disobey Him time and again, even after this incident. But in all that time, he will continue to keep his promise. Because 1,400 years later, he will bring this promise to its very fulfillment. God will descend again. This time, not in the form of a cloud, but in human form, as a baby. Through Jesus, God will actually do each of the things that Moses asked for in verse 9. He will come to dwell in our midst. He will pardon our iniquity and our sin, and he will take us to be his very inheritance. This is the beautiful and wonderful gospel that we get to celebrate every Sunday at church. Own it. Love it. Celebrate it. And here's the really cool thing. Here's a really cool thing if you read the Bible with an intention to detail. God will actually allow Moses to see the result of his prayer. In Matthew 17, Jesus climbs another mountain with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And when he reaches the top, we're told that he is transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun and his clothes become white as light. Jesus, the God-man, becomes radiant and he manifests himself in all his eternal cosmic glory. And who appears on that mountain to witness it? It's Moses in spirit. Moses, who wanted so much to see the glory of God on top of Mount Sinai, is brought to another mountain and given a glimpse of God's glorious Son Isn't that amazing? Disciple John, who witnessed these events firsthand, writes about his experience later in his gospel. He writes this. We have seen this glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Amen. Grace Strano, this passage reminds us that God has made himself known. He has given us this golden record in the Old Testament, and he has given us his glorious son in the new. And he has given us each of these things so that we might know him and come to have a deeper, richer, and more satisfying relationship with him. And so as we draw near to this Christmas season, let us treasure his law treasure his name, and treasure his promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this passage, for this golden record in which you reveal yourself to us through your law and your name and your promise. We ask that you make us able to treasure these things, to love them, and to follow you with more affection and devotion and obedience. Make us a better worshiping community that is able to respond to you for the good of our souls and for the good of the city we live in pray in Christ's name. Amen. At this point, we have uh, some time for Q&A, and Chen's going to be helping me with that. Um, It's a good question. Uh, Regarding verse 7 from today's scripture, when it talks Um, about the sins and iniquities passed on to the third and fourth generations, would God pass on judgment to other generations based on sins from earlier ones? That's a good question. I think we touched on that briefly, so Uh, the Bible is very clear that each person uh, stands guilty because of their own sin. So it's not as though uh, children are being punished for the sins of their parents. God is not a God like that. At the same time, what you find in the Bible is that the consequences of sin do linger. So God eventually sends his people into exile. Uh, God's people eventually aren't able to enter into the promised land. Uh, and, And successive generations bear the consequence and the punishment of that in some sense. But when you talk about uh, sin in, in terms of salvation, uh, God, God does certainly hold uh, each individual person responsible for that, their sin. So I hope that's helpful. Uh, I'll stick around afterwards if you'd like to ask any more questions or chat some more. Uh, at this point, we're going to respond with a song.